If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. If I could, just for you and the members of the committee as well as Canadians, we borrow these players from other leagues. Um, we take great pride in the responsibility that we have for our national team program. We've made some changes to our code of conduct. We're having discussions right now as to whether or not we can strengthen the ability uh, to compel players that we borrow to participate in an investigation uh, regarding what happens under our care. So it was an awkward uh, late afternoon slash evening as Hockey Canada officials were testifying before a Commons committee. That was uh, the voice of Hockey Canada President Scott Smith, outgoing CEO Tom Rennie was also there. They were there to answer questions about how an alleged sexual assault in 2018 was handled. Hockey Canada has settled a lawsuit relating to that alleged sexual assault uh, that allegedly involved up to eight players on the 2018 uh, Canadian World Junior Team. Uh, This was uh, something that allegedly occurred after uh, some kind of a golf event, uh, a Hockey Canada Foundation Gala in uh, London in June of of 2018. Hockey Canada has settled a $3.5 million lawsuit. No details of the settlement have been released. We did learn yesterday that that money was paid out not through insurance, uh, but through Hockey Canada uh, cashing in some investments to settle that lawsuit. The investigation was never completed, we also learned. And as we learned, and you, you heard it uh, referred to in that clip, players were not compelled to participate in the investigation. There were some conflicting numbers given in terms of how many players actually did. But players on that team were not compelled to be a part of this investigation. So in terms of how Hockey Canada handled this allegation, in terms of how Hockey Canada has handled others, in terms of whether Hockey Canada has really truly addressed some of the culture around sexual assault, some big questions remain. Uh, Someone who was watching closely uh, the uh, hearing last night has been doing a lot of uh, work on this story is Dan Robson, a senior writer with The Athletic, theathletic.com. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, yeah, there, there was a lot we learned yesterday, at least in terms of, you know, how this was all handled. There's clearly still many unanswered questions here. But what, what stood out to you, first of all, what you heard yesterday? Well, I think that the key um, point that is the one that you just made, actually, was that um, these players that were attending Hockey Canada events um, were not compelled to take part in Hockey Canada's third-party investigation. And I think that uh, came as a shock to most people listening, certainly to uh, the MPs at the hearing, um, that, you know, within an organization like Hockey Canada, that there isn't something written within its code of conduct that would ensure that um, players in circumstances like this cooperate uh, with investigators to make sure that the, the truth 
uh, comes out, and, and that comes out to a question of accountability, and, and that's one of the uh, key uh, points that continue to be raised uh, last evening. Now, and, and again, I mean, there may be legal questions here whether Hockey Canada has the ability to compel players to participate in an investigation, but I think a lot of people have pointed out, you're Hockey Canada. You, you have a lot of clout, you have a, lot, have a lot of leverage over players that you can participate in this investigation, or you can forget about putting on that, that Canada jersey ever again. So, so they certainly had some ability to, I think, uh, compel players in, in another way to participate in, in this investigation. But do we know why they didn't? Uh, we know what the, they were, what they said yesterday was that they were, it was on the advice of the third-party law firm that uh, worked with them on, on the investigation, uh, saying that um, they, they wouldn't have jurisdiction to do that. So uh, from what executives said last night, they were basing it on sort of a legal ground. Uh, but they also did say that they are working with partners um, to, to make a change in the code of conduct or to look into making a change in the code of conduct that um, could uh, create a clause in which players would be compelled to testify in the future. So um, as far as we understand, they were leaning on a, a legal argument for that. And we mentioned, you know, we got some different numbers put out there in terms of the number of players that refuse to cooperate. Do, do we know with any certainty what that number is at this point? Well, President Scott Smith, Hockey Canada President Scott, uh, Scott Smith yesterday, um, I think he attempted to correct the record when he stated later in the hearing that he believed that there were 12 or 13 players that involved that were involved in the um, tournament that day, the, the golf tournament that day, that um, cooperated with the investigation earlier outgoing CEO Tom Rennie had uh, had said a small number, I believe it was five or six. And so um, we haven't had any further clarification on that as far as I'm sure. But what was clear was that several players did not participate in that investigation. So um, I believe it was about eight or so that they, they believed did not participate in the investigation. And on top of that, um, what I think is particularly interesting is that um, Hockey Canada says they do not know uh, the names of the alleged uh, people involved in the um, alleged sexual uh, assault. It's interesting. I mean, the NHL has gotten involved, and I think the NHL wants to know. Um, you know, it's easy enough to look at that, that roster from that team and, and see a lot mm-hmm. of well-known names. And, you know, there's certainly a possibility, a likelihood even, that, you know, we're talking about some active NHL players here. So what about possible involvement from, from the league at this point? Well, I guess what we're basically seeing is what, um, what that would look like. I, I know the NHL has reached out to the NHLPA and, and, and say that they are going to be pursuing an, an active investigation. Um, how that investigation will be carried out and, and how long it will take and then what exactly it will lead to has not been uh, fully disclosed at this moment. And I, I think that that's one of the things that um, people sort of watching this play out in the world of hockey, with Hockey Canada and the NHL, is, is sort of the, what is the outcome of these investigations when they look into things and, and they ask questions? What are the teeth what is the teeth behind it? What is the impact? Um, and, you know, for a long time, um, many critics say there hasn't been nearly enough um, action uh, and accountability taken when, when these kinds of stories come forward. And that's the thing. We heard yesterday, and, you know, both, both um, Rennie and Smith said numerous times, you know, we're, we're trying to protect the victim here. And again, and I, I hope that's the case. But I think to a lot of people, it feels like it's the institution that's being protected. It's the, the players that are being protected, the perpetrators, you know, a, a hockey culture of sorts that's, that's being protected here. How, how is this all being perceived by, by critics, by those who have followed this issue closely for many years? Well, I think one of the key things there is um, I have no doubt that I, I have no doubt that anybody is trying to protect the, 
um, the victim in, in this by not naming that person. But um, one of the criticisms is that, of course, there is supposedly an NDA that was signed, um, meaning um, you know, this person won't be able to speak about this further. And that um, appears to be something Hockey Canada indicated to uh, uh, the Canadian Sport Minister um, when she first inquired about this. Um, and so that, I mean, that just sort of suggests a lack of transparency. That suggests it's, uh, an attempt to cover up information that might come to light. Um, the fact that this information just came out through media reports, it was not immediately disclosed by Hockey Canada. No one was aware of that there was an active investigation going on to the alleged sexual assault from 2018. We're talking four years ago. Um, so four years later, for this finally to be coming to light, suggests that there isn't um, an attempt for at least public transparency. And, and I think that that's something um, that, that Hockey Canada is being called to account for. Well, and, and, and look, and, and they did try to insist yesterday, uh, you know, Smith and, and Rennie, that... You know, we're we're working to change this culture. We're working to change our approach here. Uh, that this is something that is taken more seriously now. And I mean, you know, saying the right things, but you know, can we point to any meaningful changes? I mean, where, where's the evidence here to, to back up the assertion that this is, you know, that the culture has changed? That uh, it's this these things are handled differently than they were in the past. Well, I think to that question, we have to look back at um, sort of a the ugly past that when it comes to hockey, I mean, hockey is a sport that so many of us love and, and, you know, it does so much, has done such good in, in, in for many people in, in this country and around the world. But um, if you were to look back at the history of, of um, assault and, and issues happening within the games, particularly at the junior hockey level, um, I wrote an article about this uh, that came out yesterday, sort of looking back all the way back to the 1980s of um, instances involving junior hockey players specifically and, and group um, assault uh, against um, victims. And, and this is something that every time the right thing has been said, every time they, there's sort of a suggestion that, you know, we're going to do better, we're going to make sure we do training, we're going to make sure we... And it happens again and again and again. And so, uh, you know, I think it, it's hard right now to, to not be somewhat cynical about... Um, those sort of, you know, uh, attempts to say, you know, we're going to do better next time. We're going to change our, our code. We're going to make sure players have training. Um, there needs to be real systemic change at all levels. And, and I think everybody, you know, critics would say every, every, at every level of the game and anybody who is a stakeholder in this game, whether you um, coach it or you play it or you just love it, this needs to be at the forefront because it's something that is deeply disturbing that um, has happened multiple times. It's not the first time that this kind of story has come to light. And I think that's what's the most disheartening, um, one of the most disheartening things about all of this. So in terms of what now, um, you know, we, we certainly heard from you know, some government officials, even uh, the Minister for Sports, suggesting that, you know, th- that what's being done isn't enough. I, I don't know to what extent, you know, government might force these organizations to go in a certain direction. You know, this is coming off, obviously, the whole situation with Kyle Beach and everything we heard from from NHL officials about how, you know, things need to change, and here we go again. But do you feel like yesterday marked any kind of a turning point here? But I hope so. I think, um, you know, there being a government hearing, um, you know, Hockey Canada officials being called to, um, you know, the Hill to, to answer these questions publicly, um, to answer questions about accountability and process and, and, and what will change, and to come under scrutiny. I mean, there'll be a financial audit. I know Hockey Canada said as you stated earlier, that um, the, these, this um, settlement was taken from a divestment of investments and, and did not involve public money or insurance money, uh, but there's going to be an audit of that. Um, and I think now further oversight will help, further scrutiny will help, further media pressure will help. 
Um, but I, I don't know. And, and, I, and I also would suggest, I, I do think there's probably uh, an earnest desire for change within Hockey Canada. I mean, I, I can't, uh, there's no, I, I've no doubt that people don't want this kind of, um, these, these horrible acts to happen and sort of these, this, this to be something that is tied to this game. And so, um, but, I, but again, I, I don't know exactly how we're going to know uh, for sure uh, that, that change has actually happened, um, that, that there is accountability, uh, because it's something that, you know, we'll, we will stop talking about until it comes to light again. Uh, full coverage and all of this is mentioned, theathletic.com. Some great work there, Dan. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks very much. All the best. Uh, that is Dan Robson, award-winning journalist, best-selling author, senior enterprise writer for The Athletic, theathletic.com. Uh, so they were covering the hearing yesterday and, as mentioned, had a really interesting piece uh, early yesterday prior to the hearing about some of the more recent history around some of these issues. And so, yeah, it does raise some troubling questions. You know, when people want to know. You know, if my child's going on to play at those those levels, I mean, for one, are they safe? But, you know, what are they being exposed to? What what kind of culture are they being thrust into? You know, what kind of person are they coming out of this? So, you know, those seem like big questions. And you would think that uh, the world of hockey would have learned the lessons of all of these other cases and scandals. You know, going back through through the 80s and 90s and, and up until more recently. Welcome back. Back in March, a swimmer by the name of Leah Thomas uh, sparked a debate. I think it's part of what's been an ongoing debate about gender in sports uh, and, and how best to deal with transgender athletes. Leah Thomas uh, won a victory at the NCAA Swimming Finals. Uh, competing against women swimmers. Leah Thomas was the first known transgender athlete to win an NCAA swimming championship. Uh, but Leah Thomas was, was born a male. Leah Thomas had competed in swimming as a male in the years previous to this year's victory. And there were many who said at the time that this was an unfair advantage that sports need to recognize some biological realities while still trying to accommodate uh, transgendered athletes. Because a lot of what's happening is happening at the detriment of women's sports. Well, the aftermath of of that situation, uh, the International Swimming Federation, known as uh, FINA, F-I-N-A, has come up with a new gender inclusion policy that's aimed at protecting competition in female events. New policy is that transgender athletes can no longer compete in female events unless they underwent their transition before the age of 12. Uh, FINA is possibly looking as well, creating some open divisions for transgender competition if the demand is there. FINA's president said in a statement, quote, we have to protect the rights of our athletes to compete, but we also have to protect competitive fairness at our events, especially in the women's category. So I think this is maybe kind of a landmark decision in terms of not just swimming as a sport, obviously, but all sports. In terms of trying to find that balance between allowing transgender athletes to to compete, but doing so in a way that protects the integrity of the sport, in particular protects uh, women's sport competition. Uh, Well, someone who's uh, written a lot about these issues, uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon, Linda Blade is president of Athletics Alberta, co-author of the book Unsporting, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Linda, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
Good afternoon, Rob. How are you? I'm doing well. So, like I say, you you follow these issues very closely, written a lot about them. How, how significant is this, first of all, in your view? This is huge. This is really huge. Uh, we had a breakthrough in 2020 with World Rugby also saying that at the elite level uh, in women's rugby, international rugby, uh, you just can't have a male body in that women's division no matter how they identify because it's very it's quite dangerous but now with swimming it's it's about the fairness as well right and because you're in your own lane so there's no contact but it's still unfair right and the concept of fairness i mean it, it's subjective obviously but you know there's a reason why there are in many of these sports swimming included uh, there are men's categories and, and women's categories that that exists for a reason and have we, have yes. we sort of lost sight of that maybe yeah, I mean, it's very well known if you look at the world records in any sport, um, males have an advantage. Uh, they have a, a clear advantage from anywhere from 10% to 160% performance is better than females. And so, you know, especially as Sina has said, especially if someone has benefited from male puberty and now they're into adulthood and they have all the physical advantages um, really, it is. It's really untenable, and and you can't mitigate the, the advantage in any way with any medical procedure. So it really needs to. We really need to protect the female athlete category on a physical basis. It's interesting to see the reaction because I think some have described this as a ban on trans athletes or that that FINA is restricting mm-hmm. trans athletes. But as you've noted, that that's not really the right way to look at this, is it? No, because. There are two kinds of trans individuals. There's our male, uh, males who want to identify as women, and then there are females who want to identify as men. And the females who want to identify as men overwhelmingly remain in women's sports because they know the, know the truth. I mean, they have a female body, even if they want to identify another way. And so this rule also protects the trans who are female to men trans uh, because, of course, it wouldn't be... It'd be very difficult for a person born female to then suddenly be competing with the men. Right. I mean, we have an example of what you alluded to. I mean, on the Canadian women's soccer team, this player mm-hmm. uh, who was Quinn. Is, Rebecca is, Quinn, yeah. Right. Rebecca Quinn, who, who identifies now as Quinn, uh, mm-hmm. but plays with the women, is is transgender right. or non-binary, I guess. But, you it's know, there's... Perfectly fine. Right. And, and perfectly no, fine. nobody has a problem with that. No. Right. No. So this is only really about... People born male who now, having gone through puberty, suddenly want to identify as women, even though they have bigger hearts, lungs, cardiovascular system, muscles, limb lengths, broader shoulders, like the the whole deal. And, you know, as much as, as, uh, you know, they need to be affirmed, there are other ways to do that, that instead of making sport unfair for the female athlete. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, Leah Thomas, I don't think anyone's trying to say Leah Thomas cannot identify as a female. Right. Uh, quite the opposite. And, and, if, and if that's who she is and identifies as such and, and wants to live her life that way, I don't think people have a problem with that. But again, when Absolutely. it comes to the integrity of, of sport, there are certain aspects that we have to, to factor in, right? Well, of course, because you don't, uh, you don't play sport with an identity. You play sport with your body. <clears throat> and we have to except that there's a physical reality when we're coming into performance. And, um, you know, like we have never asked athletes, what, what's your religion or what's your politics? Like when they come into sport, 
if you have an ideology or a mental orientation of any sort coming into sport, the whole point and the beauty of sport is that you can set your ideologies and religions aside and, and compete with your body. And that's what we have to focus on is, is the sport being fair to the female athlete in terms of her physical female, you know, design. The idea of an open category, and, and Fina says, you know, it's something they're looking at, some, not something they've established at that point, but is, does that represent, whether it's swimming or, or in other sports, uh, a kind of a reasonable compromise here? Yeah, it is actually. In fact, what I have recommended, and I wrote a book on this topic, um, and uh, it's called Unsporting, if you want to look it up. But anyway, I wrote a book about this, and, and really have, having looked at the whole, you know, the, the whole field and the whole picture broad spectrum of what's going on here i would say that the best way to protect female sports and be fully inclusive is to have a female only category for female bodies no matter how they identify and then an open category which normally would have been maybe the men's but you could actually have an open category for men who identify in different ways Females who identify in different ways. Anybody who wants to be different than just strictly the female, having the female body, or somebody who has, let's say, extra, if you're a woman, you have extra testosterone. There should be an open, and if you have an open category, it's, it's not men's category, it's just open for everybody that has any extra advantages from the female form, um, then that would be 100% inclusive. What about the concern that's been raised about invasiveness of, of these kinds of policies and what it means for women, uh, either, mm-hmm. even those who are born women or those who identify as women, to have to prove that they are women, that, you know, there's been some concern raised about, you know, states and uh, laws in various states in the U.S. that, you know, for young women to have to prove that they're women, that can be uncomfortable and invasive. How do we mitigate against that, do you think? Well, I mean, it should be pretty straightforward from the birth certificate, I guess. But in the past, like when I was competing on the Canadian national team, uh, I had, you know, we also had to submit to gender testing, which wasn't in, at all humiliating because all, all it was was uh, take a Q-tip and brush the inside of your cheek and, you know, put the Q-tip in your mouth, brush the inside of your cheek, and then determine the, you know, whether the XX chromosomes are there or not. And, I mean, that was very clear, and you could actually – very quickly determine who was if you if the female if there was somebody in the female category you shouldn't be there and and i guess uh the olympic committee sort of did away with that in the 90s thinking we all had this under control and everybody it was pretty people were being honest and generally you know what's the point and all that but now because of the transgender ideology gender ideology has forced us back to the point where it's almost as if we need to reintroduce such a thing uh, which is not, you know, we would rather not have to make people prove it. But if, if people are going to be coming and self-identifying into categories where they have a competitive advantage, you're almost leaving the international governing bodies no choice. And I don't, I would say that's not about, I mean, it wasn't invasive. It was not humiliating. And for people who say that, that it's just incorrect. The more humiliating thing is get it, taking the P-doping test where a nurse has to be in the cubicle with you watching you pee. I mean, that's worse, and we do that all the time with doping control. Yeah. So in terms of whether we'll see more of this in, in other sports, other sporting bodies and organizations, I mean, maybe part of it is, you know, whether FINA stands firm and, and what the blowback is from this, but wh- where do you see this all going from here? Well, <clears throat> the Olympic Committee 
the International Olympic Committee did a huge disservice to sport because in 2015 they brought in a policy where a, a male person could self-identify into women's sport just by reducing testosterone a little bit for a year. I mean, it just was not, it was just incorrect. It was not based on science. And now the Olympic Committee found themselves in trouble, so they basically opened it up in last year in 2021, made it even worse by just saying, well, we don't want to, we, you know, they created a problem. And now they say, well, we don't want to deal with it, so we're just going to leave it up to each individual global world sport to make up their own mind. That's why FINA had to do their own policy. Now FIFA has to do their own policy. Uh, world Rugby had to do their own policy and so on. And so now um, Seb Coe, who's the uh, president of World Athletics Track and Field, now is saying, you know, even in the world of my sport, track and field, um, you're going to have to go back now and review the policy. Because, you know, the Olympic Committee just doesn't want to have this doesn't want to take responsibility to make this decision. Very interesting. We'll see what all goes from here. Linda, thanks for your input on this yeah. and appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you very much, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That's Linda Blades, uh, President of Athletics Alberta, a high performance uh, sport coach, uh, co author of the book Unsporting. So her thoughts on FINA's policy and whether this is maybe the approach that other sporting organizations need to take. You know, these are difficult issues, and I don't want to, to downplay that side of it. And I think, as she said, certainly at, at high performance levels of sport, there are, there are easy ways to make those determinations. I, I've seen some, some issues raised around, I think Ohio's an example of uh, a state that's brought in a law, which again, I mean, the idea of protecting female sport, I understand that. I have a daughter and she at one time played a sport. I mean, um, but in order to, you know, if there was ever any question raised about an athlete, you'd have to bring a note from your doctor or, you know, you'd have other officials who'd be involved. Like, the idea that you're going to be, you know, inspecting young girls to make sure they're female, like, it's really kind of icky and creepy. And and so hopefully it doesn't have to get to that point. And that would be something that'd be abused, right? You got a star player on, on some team and you say, well, I don't know if she's really a girl. Better pull her off the team, send her off to the doctor. Like, that can go to, to a bad place. I want to begin the conversation in this hour around the issue of uh, digital privacy and uh, what a digital charter for Canadians might look like. Uh, the federal government recently introduced legislation that is meant as a big step in that direction. Giving Canadians, they say, more control over how personal data is used by businesses, by commercial entities. Bill C-27, the government says, is a step towards uh, the mandate to advance a digital charter which are meant as a series of principles intended to strengthen consumer privacy protections and guide the development of the digital economy. So Bill uh, C-27 is mentioned, tabled by Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne in the House of Commons last Thursday. It includes some new sections around consumer privacy protection, personal information, and artificial intelligence. So it's aspirational in scope, and certainly I think there are concerns that Canadians have uh, about their privacy online. And, you know, what companies are doing with their, their personal and private information. So the C-27 uh, address all of that. The government says this is meaningful legislation, that we're further ahead uh, than, than other countries. Champagne uh, said, quote, it is one of the most stringent frameworks you would find among G7 nations. Well, is that true? What does that mean? Our next guest fears that that C-27 might not be as impressive as the government would have us believe. 
uh, that there are still some some shortcomings here when it comes to meaningful protections uh, for Canadians' personal data. Uh, Keen Birch is associate professor at York University, co-editor of the journal Science as Culture, uh, has a great piece uh, up at uh, nationalpost.com and in today's National Post on some of these issues. Professor Birch, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Rob. Great to be uh, on the program. Uh, so when when you talk about some of the, the shortcomings in, in C27, I mean, does does it come across in, in your view then as, as kind of uh, like a level of disappointment in terms of, you know, what the government had sort of promised to do and, and what they've delivered? Is, is there a disconnect there? Um, I don't think there's a disconnect between what they promised and what they've delivered. Um, so there's a, there's a history to this digital charter that goes back to 2019. Uh, so they released the digital charter as a set of principles in, I think it was May 2019, um, and then they tabled uh, a bill in, I think it's November 2020 for the first time, and that kind of disappeared. And so this is the second version of the bill. So between May 2019 and this bill uh, now, is a, you know, it's a three-year period, and there's obvious reasons for that, COVID and such like. Uh, but I think the principles are... Are relatively similar between the you know that first iteration three years ago and and, and what we see now, uh, and that doesn't mean that those you know, you know the principles are all fine and good, but I don't think they necessarily play out in ways that are uh, going to solve some of the issues that uh, you know face us in the digital economy when it comes to our personal data. Right. So maybe shortcomings isn't the best way to address that. I think what you're arguing is that the government's kind of maybe missing some of the the real challenges. Uh, that, that exists when it comes to privacy right now and personal data. Yeah, uh, and I think this is a, um, uh, I think this is, you know, it's not just the Canadian government that sometimes misses things, and maybe this is my, my own bugbear, but I think there's certain things that, uh, you know, when people are talking about privacy and data protection that just, uh, you know, that uh, are not addressed. And uh, in the article that you mentioned in the National Post, uh, one of the first things I point out is that, you um, a lot of the times, and especially with this Digital Charter Implementation Act, you know, a lot of times there's just an assumption that uh, you know uh, privacy, data protection, just concerns cybersecurity, and that's it. You know, it's just a concern with uh, you know making sure that our data, when it is collected, is secured by companies. And right. this is the point that you know maybe we want and we'll say in how our data or whether our data gets collected and used, and you know can we opt out of this. Uh, you know, or, you know, can we op- have an opt-in, you know, kind of uh, regulation where we are asked if we want our data to be collected before it does get collected? Because at the minute, it's a bit of a free-for-all. You know, companies are free to collect data. There are relatively few limits on its use now and in the future, especially when you, uh, you know, so-called de-identify it. Uh, and businesses can go about exploiting it uh, to their heart's consent, almost. Well, we saw recently, I mean, you know, the uh, the Tim Hortons app was, was flagged oh, by yeah. privacy commissioners for violating Canada's privacy laws, that it was gathering data on users beyond the scope of what users had agreed to when they downloaded the app. I mean, for all that, mm-hmm. that people might have read, all of those terms and conditions. So even in, in finding that it violated privacy laws, it didn't really feel like there was uh, any kind of meaningful action taken. What, what did that case illustrate about, you know, the shortcomings in our existing law and, and where some of the problems still lie? Yeah, so the Tim Hortons one is interesting. That came out, um, I remember reading the, I think it was a, it was a report, a reporter, a journalist in the National Post who uh, first wrote about it back in 2020. So right. I took you know, two years to, to get to the point of a privacy commissioner report. Um, and it is, it is the, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a classic example of a company just 
collecting, hoovering up as much data as they can about us. And it's it's not simply, you know, uh, we're not just talking about personal data like, your, you know, name, age, and credit details, all that sort of thing, but locational data as well. Uh, you know, where are you going, um, you know, overseas as well, I think, in the Tim Hortons case. So we're just collecting data about location data overseas, uh, you know, location data of where, this, where the, the, the reporter journalist was going, basically, doing their daily routines. Um, without much rationale for doing that, if you think you know Tim Tim Hortons is a you know it's a it's a coffee you know it's, yeah. a, it's a coffee company it doesn't need to know where you're going uh, and so there's a there's a kind of that's what I was saying before about there are a few limits on what data can be collected and it's a bit of a free for all. Right, and in case of the Tim Hortons, it almost seems like they were gathering the, all the uh, data and then sort of you know, deciding what to do with that. They were just kind of sitting on it if it, it proved to be useful at some point. But there is value in that data, and that sort of speaks to the fundamental question underlying all of this. Why is our data so valuable? Yeah, there's a lot of value in the data. Um, and I think one of the some of the issues that are really interesting now and, and things that I'm interested in personally doing research on is this, you know, is exactly this question of, you know, what is the value of data and how do we go about valuing it? Uh, from my perspective, the value of data is because it is a it's an important asset. Although it is an asset currently that you you know businesses can't put on, you know don't put on their balance sheets, but it's a you know it's an important resource that can lead to you know future uh, that, that generates future revenues. Um, and it's a you know when it comes to privacy, you know one, one of the things that's really valuable is on you know it's the lack of privacy that's really valuable, which is kind of you know concerning when it comes to these these kinds of data protection privacy acts. Um, and, you know, you, you can collect, as I mentioned before, you can collect data to your heart's content. Uh, you can use it to do various things or sit on it and create what I call data enclaves, you know, just a you know, massive data that you've collected. Uh, there are a lot of uh, large multinational companies, often uh, U.S.-based ones. You know, you can think of Facebook, Google, and so on, uh, the classic kind of examples, but other ones as well that are collecting an enormous amount of data. Uh, they're not necessarily, you know, they don't necessarily have a, uh, a use for yet, um, but, uh, you know, they may have a use in the future or they're trying to work out a use for it. Um, and what's, uh, you know, what's concerning in a kind of Canadian context is that, um, you know, the control over this collection of, of this, these data enclaves is, sits outside of Canada. So it's, you know, firms that are, uh, you know, as I said, based in the U.S., uh, some of the big tech firms are based in China. Uh, you know, they sit outside of uh, Canadian jurisdiction. Uh, but also, you know, those are the, the companies that uh, are, are coming to dominate the digital economy. Uh, they are uh, having a negative impact on innovation, on competition in the digital economy, especially, you know, new startups finding it difficult to, to compete with these companies that sit on these uh, these mass, um, yeah, um, hordes of data. Well, is that to say there's nothing the Canadian government can do or the government's plural can do? I mean, how, how do we address that then? I think there is. I think there's, you can see this in other parts of the world where um, other jurisdictions uh, are trying to do things. Um, Canada is a bit, a bit of a, a slow starter here. Uh, other jurisdictions have been doing things um, to try and, uh, you know, uh, rein in some of the power. So it's not just simply a, you know, it's a, it's a, um, a multi, I don't know what you call it, multifaceted, uh, you know, you need a multifaceted kind of policy approach to it where you're dealing with privacy, data protection, competition, uh, all sorts of different kinds of policies together. And so the European Union, for example, has a series of 
you know, kind of suite of policies that they're, they're pursuing at the minute. They have a data act, covers uh, uh, sort of, um, I think it's non-personal data that gets generated by digital technologies, like the whole Internet of Things idea. Uh, it's about trying to support interoperability so that data is, you know, it can be taken from one uh, one place to another place, or one company organization to another organization. They have a Digital Markets Act, which is about promoting competition, trying to rein in those big tech gatekeepers. Uh, Digital Services Act is another one, which is about oversight of online content. Um, and then a Data Governance Act as well, which is um, attempts to think about how to go about sharing data in a way that is, you know, you can create, you can support innovation and support competition at the same time. So where does this leave us then? A government that's, that's trying to address the issue, but maybe is, is missing the mark or doesn't fully understand the, the issue. So where does that leave us? Where do we go from here? I think there are some, so some good elements in the Act, I think. Um, I think there's a, in particular, a shift from the ombudsperson kind of approach to regulation towards a much more um, uh, you know, sort of regulatory approach where they can uh, uh, issue fines, uh, criminal fines and, and so on, notices, and uh, they've increased the amount that they can uh, they can fine companies, and I think that's a good good thing um, because it will provide more of a deterrent, hopefully. Um, I think there are some um, pointers to issues that are important to think about uh, now and in the future, especially around, uh, you know, what kind of uh, algorithmic sort of systems automated decision-making systems that we want uh, to have in society, you know, which ones do we want, which ones do we, don't we want. Um, I just think it's, there's a, it's just a, it's a shame that the, you know, kind of the key kind of thing for me at least, that whole uh, issue around data, um, you know, our personal data and, and um, uh, you know, limiting the extent to which our personal data can be collected and used is not really addressed. We'll leave it there. Uh, appreciate the insight on all of this. Professor Birch, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Ken Birch, Associate Professor, York University, co-editor of the journal Sciences Culture. His thoughts on, you know, maybe where C-27 has some good aspects to it, but that they're kind of missing a bigger picture here in terms of where those real threats to, to our privacy exist. So, you know, this is a big issue, and it's a global issue. So about 10 years ago, the Harper government brought in a pretty significant change to Canada's justice system that uh, for those convicted of multiple homicides, the period of parole eligibility would change to reflect that. Now, right now, the, the penalty for life in, or for murder, whether it's first degree or second degree, is life in prison. But there is a period of parole eligibility attached for second degree murder. It's set at 10 years. For first degree murder, it's set at 25. The concern that had been raised was that the parole eligibility period was the same, regardless of how many homicides someone had been convicted of. There's no way to stack the penalty, but at least theoretically, you could stack the period of parole eligibility. So that was the change the government brought in. So, for example, somebody convicted of two homicides uh, could be subject to a period of parole uh, ineligibility of 50 years and so on. And there were some cases, obviously, where that was utilized. There were two cases in Alberta, in fact. Individuals convicted of triple homicides had been handed sentences of life in prison without the possibility of parole for 75 years. Then there was the case of Alexander Bissonnette. 
the young man responsible for the massacre of the mosque in Quebec City in 2017. He was convicted of six homicides. Under this provision, he could have been uh, sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 150 years. And look, even though he's a young man, obviously he's not going to live to be 150 years old, let alone 170 or 180. Uh, But the judge in that case, not quite in the middle, but opted for something in between and imposed the period of parole eligibility of 40 years. That's much more reasonable in terms of him being alive uh, to to apply for parole. Whether he would get it is a different question. Uh, But that was challenged and went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in a unanimous decision, in fact, the Supreme Court struck down uh, those changes that have violated Section 12 of the Charter, uh, the right to be protected against cruel and unusual punishment. Which raises some interesting questions. What constitutes cruel and unusual punishment then, given that the sentence for homicide in this country is life in prison? Why is it cruel and unusual uh, for a man in his late 20s to have to wait 40 years to apply for parole, whereas somebody in their 60s or 70s or 80s who's convicted of homicide will almost surely die before they have a chance to apply for parole after 25 years? So are, are there some, some gaps in, in the logic here? I mean, the question is why? Why does this constitute cruel and unusual punishment? And at least as our next guest sees it, uh, the court hasn't really fully explained itself. That there are some contradictions, uh, some, some flaws in the logic and reasoning in this court ruling. Uh, it's later an interesting new article uh, in The Spectator, spectator.co.uk. Uh, joining us on the line is Carrie Sun. Uh, to the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. He's a lawyer based in New York. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Kerry, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, to what extent would you say you were surprised by the court's ruling here? Uh, certainly, I, I would say that, that I was surprised. I think many people were surprised. At the same time, it's true that there had been uh, warnings from lawyers uh, even back when this legislation uh, was enacted in 2011 that there may be a constitutional challenge down the pipeline. So, so I was surprised that the, the decision was unanimous, uh, but it's not surprising that ultimately uh, the sentencing law was challenged. Uh, so, as mentioned, I mean, this piece goes through, you know, some of the, the problems you see with the court's ruling, both in terms of uh, its its logic uh, and, and obviously concern about the implications. But what would you say is kind of the, the primary concern you have here about uh, this, this ruling from the court? Well, uh, essentially, the court's reasoning in this case was based on the idea of human dignity. It said that Section 12 of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which protects against being subjected to cruel or unusual treatment or punishment. It said that that charter right uh, is founded on human dignity and that in order to respect the human dignity of a criminal offender, uh, you have to provide uh, the opportunity to every offender um, the possibility of being reintegrated, of being rehabilitated back into society, no matter how heinous, how vile the crime that they've committed is. And so to the Supreme Court, in principle, there's no crime that is so severe that uh, it's not possible to fully atone for it. And I think that that's the troubling part of the decision. 
some of the inconsistencies you note in, in this ruling as well, like, for example, on the principle of denunciation, which the court, uh, on the one hand, concedes is is uh, part of the the objective of uh, sentencing in cases like these, but then uh, seemingly also at the same time rejecting denunciation as a principle. How, how troubling are some of those inconsistencies? Right. So there are a number of inconsistencies, internal contradictions within the judgment itself, like the the issue of denunciation, as you mentioned. On the one hand, the court affirms that denunciation, uh, the role of uh, imposing a criminal sentence is to express society's condemnation of the crime that has occurred. and, And that sentence needs to be proportionate to the gravity of the crime, the seriousness of the crime. So on the one hand, the court affirms that. But then on the other hand, it says that uh, this kind of retributive thinking when it comes to uh, a crime like Mr. Bissonnette's where he committed multiple murders, uh, to, to think that the, the punishment should be increased proportionately with the number of lives that he took, uh, that that's a kind of retributive thinking that has no place in Canadian law, according to the court. So, so there certainly is a contradiction there. It's interesting, too, in the case of Alexander Bissonnette, who's, who's still a relatively young man, uh, the, the court determined that a parole eligibility of 40 years would violate his charter rights, would violate his dignity. Yet at the same time, the court maintains that uh, for somebody who is in their 60s or even in their 70s or 80s, that uh, a 25-year period of parole eligibility, which virtually guarantees they will die in prison, does not violate their charter rights. Does, does that seem inconsistent to you? Right. Again, that that is one of the internal tensions within the court's reasons for judgment. Uh, again, on the one hand, the court says that every offender has this right not to be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment, and that every every offender has dignity, and therefore, in principle, every offender should have a realistic possibility of parole. But then, on the other hand, the court later says that it is perfectly constitutional and acceptable for an elderly offender who, who has committed first-degree murder to be sentenced to 25 years without parole. And, and that's somebody who certainly doesn't have much hope of release. And so you wonder what the contours of this, uh, of this dignity right that the court has postulated, what, what those contours actually are, and it's quite uncertain. There is an inherent arbitrariness to it, it feels like, because obviously the Supreme Court has not struck down the principle of life in prison. This is about parole eligibility, but 25 years is arbitrary, um, and it's not as though there's there's something special or unique about 25 years. It could be 30, it could be 35, etc. So what, what in essence, is, is the Supreme Court saying here about uh, what's an appropriate sentence for somebody convicted of multiple murders, even though it's not necessarily the court's place to do so? Well, Rob, that is one of the issues with the judgment in, in that it is quite uncertain where the reasoning, what the implications of the reasoning actually are, because you're certainly right that on the one hand, 25 years is uh, is an arbitrary figure. It could well be 15 years. It could well be 30 years without the possibility of parole. But uh, what the court decided was that at, at minimum, uh, Parliament can't go above 50 years of parole ineligibility. And so it may be able to legislate something higher than 25 years, but uh, it, it would have to stay under 50 years of parole ineligibility. 
Which begs the question of, of you know, what should happen. We've, we've essentially reverted back, I guess, to the, uh, you know, the 2011 status quo in terms of uh, how sentencing applies in these cases. But there are some options here for lawmakers, as you alluded to, revisiting that question of parole eligibility, maybe changing it from 25 to, to a different number in certain cases. There's also the possibility, I suppose, or at least the option would be there to invoke the notwithstanding clause. I mean, it, it would apply you know, given the, the section of the charter used in this ruling, do, do you see some, some potential avenues here for lawmakers to address? Uh, unfortunately, in this case, Rob, it doesn't seem like there are many options. Uh, as a general matter, uh, certainly the notwithstanding clause would be available in a situation where Parliament simply disagrees with the interpretation that uh, the court has given to a constitutional right. In Mr. Bissonnette's case, though, uh, the problem with the notwithstanding clause is that it can't be used retroactively, and so it can't be used to overturn uh, past sentencing decisions. The other issue uh, going forward is that uh, Parliament could legislate uh, a similar provision again using the notwithstanding clause, but uh, the clause has a five-year sunset, and so you would need to renew uh, the notwithstanding clause every five years. Right. The question of legislating a different um, parole eligibility or ineligibility period for first-degree murder or those convicted of multiple murders, do you see that as a, as a possible uh, alternative here? Certainly. I, I, I certainly think that it is, uh, in principle, open to Parliament to uh, legislate something beyond 25 years uh, for cases like these, uh, 25 years of parole ineligibility. Um, of course, that that new law could very well be subject to challenge again under some of the reasoning that the court expressed in the Bissonnette case, where it said that uh, every single offender has to be given, in principle, has to be given the possibility, a realistic possibility of parole. And so, it, 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 one of one of the one of the things that's uncertain right now is what exactly the contours of, of that reasoning goes. Very interesting. As mentioned, the piece is up at uh, spectator.co.uk. Carrie, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. There you go. Carrie's son, uh, lawyer based in New York, uh, writer as well, says thoughts on the reasoning uh, behind the court's decision, uh, some of the questions that remain in terms of why the court ruled as it did and the implications now for, for policymakers. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.